So tonight there will be an interactive component to the talk because we will be doing uh, some chanting of the refuges and precepts. And the sheet uh, that you have, should have now, has the, that chant on one side and it has uh, the Karaniya Metta Sutta uh, on the uh, reverse side, which I will be teaching uh, during this retreat, teaching the chanting of that at the uh, 9 p.m. sitting. <clears throat> so we'll start that this evening. But I'll, I'll offer some reflections uh, before we do the chanting. So uh, that'll happen a little later and wake us up if we've started to drift off. We'll have that part where we <coughs> get our voices going and uh, do that together. But I think it's important when we uh, uh, think about doing some chanting like this, the Refuges and Precepts, which is this traditional uh, kind of real beginning of the of the retreat. It's a real way that we enter into uh, the formal retreat. And after today with the different uh, periods of silence and more interactive uh, periods and um, hopefully wrapping up last things that you needed to take care of, then we'll really uh, enter into the the retreat in a formal way by giving voice through the chanting of uh, the refuges and precepts, which is probably familiar to uh, all of you, you at least a little bit. Is there anyone here who has never uh, heard about or chanted or had anything to do with the refuges and precepts? Yeah, so, so it's familiar to all of us at least to some extent. But I think it's important to really think about what we're doing when we chant something like this, when we actually uh, voice our intention through this ritual of chanting. Because it can become kind of rote, especially if it's something that we've had a relationship with for many years, which I know is true for uh, some of you, many of you perhaps. Uh, it can just be something that, well, that's what we do at the beginning of the retreat and we might like it or not like it and it may, um, it may touch us in some way, but often it can just be something that's kind of automatic and, oh, well, we just do that and we kind of take care of it and then that's it. And uh, I think that that's um, actually a mistake to, uh, and, a, and a loss for us if that's uh, how it how it becomes for us, and it can happen over time. But actually, this idea of uh, attention to our conduct, to sila, to ethical conduct, is, um, this isn't a small thing in our lives or in the world. And if you think just for a moment about the potential power of this, you know, if everybody in the world made even a half-hearted attempt to uh, engage with the precepts on some level, we would transform the world in a moment. We would have a golden age. Even if people didn't do that good a job of it, but just even entertain the possibility of living with that kind of care and attention to how, how, they're, um, how they're moving through the world. And we can think, well, it's just something, it's, it's preliminary, it's a foundation, it's a, it's a preparation or an aid to meditation. You know, it keeps us out of jail so we can come and go on retreats. So it has that practical aspect that's undeniably true. And, and attention to how we live is a crucial aspect of the foundation of the practice and no real progress will ever occur unless this is an aspect of of our life unless this is in place in a certain way. And a life uh, of uh, oriented around harmony, a life of non-harmony leads to a heart and mind that are more at ease, free of remorse and worry about our actions and conduct. And, and they bring greater calm, tranquility, ease, relaxation to the mind. They make that possible. And, and this is a great aid to us. It leads to uh, the unfolding of the practice in a very obvious way. But it isn't the only, uh, it isn't just that sila is an aid to meditation. Its implications in our life, in the world, are much broader than that. And, and doesn't, to hold it in that way doesn't touch, I think, the uh, vast potential 
liberating potential here. <clears throat> and in my experience over quite a few years now, I feel very directly in my own life that um, that the the our understanding and relationship to uh, our conduct to sila is woven into the fabric of our understanding, the fabric of our practice every step of the way. And it's constantly being refined as we deepen in our practice. And I think if we were to make attention to how we live in terms of uh, sila and a relationship to our conduct in this regard, if we were to make this the real focus, main focus of our, our practice, and really um, bring along with that the intention to really watch the mind and heart in relation to that as we engage with that, we would discover that uh, this is, it is a liberation practice, that the whole of the path is encompassed in this exploration. So it's not just a preliminary practice. And the key, of course, is this intention to really engage in a, in a real way and to really watch the mind and heart, to really pay attention to what's going on there. And there's a way that uh, our attention to um, living ethically with care, with this orientation around uh, harmony, it lifts us up in a way uh, that I felt so much of the time in my own uh, life and practice. It, it purifies and beautifies the heart and mind. And I think we can actually undertake it with this intention. May this be a support for the mind and, an, and, a, um, and a beautification of the mind, an adornment for the mind. You know, I often you know, we have to be careful of our, uh, very careful of our own assessment of, of uh, our practice and ourselves as a yogi, but I don't often impress myself very much as a yogi. I'm confessing this to you. I, I'm a role model for, um, you know, sticking to it, but not for some stellar uh, ability here. But I've kept at it for a long time. But I often reflect on the fact that for a long time now, I've had a very active engagement with sila. And this has, has um, brought joy and gladness into my heart on many an occasion when my practice has disappointed me. <laughs> <laughs> but I can reflect on this and it's actually really, really powerful. This, uh, this is no small thing that we would uh, engage in this way. And it points to me towards something that has been a dramatic shift that I've seen over years. Maybe one of the most beautiful um, things that I could point to as a gift of practice is that I have seen a way that my own mind and heart have become my good friend, my true friend, real friend. And I did not start there. And a lot of it has to do with this uh, commitment to uh, engaging with how I live in the world, with sila. So the chant, and you can look at this a little bit if you'd like to while, we're, while I'm talking. I'll, I'm going to go through uh, some parts of it uh, as I reflect on what we're doing here before we do the chanting. The very first part is this uh, called the homage, the homage to the blessed noble and perfectly enlightened one is the translation there, the namutasa. We do three times. And this is how, how, the, how it begins with this idea of paying homage. And he uses these words and um, this kind of maybe seems sort of outdated language in a way. And we don't often think about, you know, well, I'm going around and paying homage on a daily basis. We don't even use that word. It's a funny old fashioned word in some ways. I'm going to go pay homage. How many of your friends... Uh, tell you that when you call up. I'm, I'm paying homage now, so I'll call you back. <laughs> we don't do that. We don't think in those ways. But you know, what, what, might it, what would it mean to actually hold something in, in that way, to pay homage or show respect in that way? You know, sometimes when the teachers, some of your fellow yogis, maybe uh, you yourself come into the hall and you may bow to the front here, to this... Uh, Buddha, Rupa, this statue, this image. 
here. It's behind me. You know, and, and maybe, maybe you do that, maybe you don't. Some of you might wonder, well, what's up with that? You know, what's that mean? Am I supposed to start doing that? Am I expected to start bowing? And of course, there's no expectation on anyone's part that anybody would do that. It might be meaningful for you, it might not. But if you do bow, or if you do uh, chant these words, or think of paying homage, or holding something as worthy of paying homage to, it's, it's worth looking to see, well, what, what is that? What, what would I hold as worthy? What would I bow to? If you do bow, why do you do it? Is it just because you want to look good, or a good Buddhist bows, or, you know, it's, is it, there's nothing intrinsically holy or valuable in this bronze casting. I've, I've, I have a background in sculpture. I've made things like that, not Buddhas. I've made elephant seals and giant horse flies, things like that, but the same process is involved. I know how to do that. I could make one. I used to be able to, maybe I've forgotten. But, you know, we might find that beautiful. It may have some meaning to us, but what is it? You know, clearly what we do then is we bow to it as a symbol of something. And that's obvious, right? It's a symbol, but it's worth looking then, well, what is it a symbol of? What does it symbolize? You know, when, when uh, the Buddha, after the Buddha died and for hundreds of years, there weren't any of these statues the Buddha was represented by an empty seat or sometimes a pair of footprints. And in Buddhist countries, now in these days, you often see a, a, set, a pair of footprints. There'll be a, a pagoda, a stupa, a shrine built over a, a pair of footprints. And, you know, the one thus gone, he was here, he left his footprint. They didn't, you know, it was when the Greeks came and they said, you don't have any statues of your God. And the early statues looked like Apollo and they have nice curly hair and kind of Greek features. The oldest ones, they don't. That's when those statues showed up. Buddha wasn't into that. So we bow to what it symbolizes. And traditionally it's said to symbolize, uh, be a symbol, one way to look at it anyway, is a symbol of the triple gem, what's called the triple gem. <coughs> Buddha Dhamma Sangha, and this is the second part of the chant where we, we go three times. We take refuge, we go for refuge to the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha three times. I like to do things in threes in this tradition. And just to make sure we, just in case we weren't sure the first time, we'll do it again, right, one more time. Just to really be sure that we know what we're doing there. So what is this then? If we, if we go to these uh, three times to these Buddha Dhamma Sangha, what's, what does it mean to go there for refuge? I think, you know, in a way, we're always seeking refuge, whether we think about it that way or are aware of it or not. We're looking for something that can serve us as a place of safety or, or some kind of security. You know, but where do we look for refuge? You know, what do we turn to? Is it shopping or something? <laughs> where do we go? Where's the world out there going for refuge? I'm going to the internet, I think, shopping or something kind of like that or some, some transient experience often. It's, a, it's, a, it's an ongoing quest. <laughs> to find something that might be refuge. So what would be a real refuge in an unpredictable and constantly changing world? Where could we find something that would be safe in this way, that would be a, a, a good place to rest our heart? Now this is really a, this goes to the heart of our predicament here <laughs> and why we might come on retreat, I think. It's this search for refuge, which we could say the search for uh, a resting place. So we have these, the triple gem, and the first of these, the refuge in Buddha. After his en enlightenment experience, the Buddha was 
He was cruising down the road. He looked pretty good, fully enlightened, kind of glowing countenance. And uh, someone saw him there and, and said, what are you? Are you a god? And he said, I'm awake. And the root of the word Buddha, Bud, in Pali, this means awake, wakefulness. So a Buddhist is an awakest. We're all awakists if we want to be Buddhists. I'll be an awakest, that sounds good. And maybe the, this image and this uh, thoughts of, or the ideas of, or reflections on the historical Buddha, this person who did live nearly 2,600 years ago, was a human, did a practice very much like what we're doing, had a certain realization, taught for a long time. Maybe um, this, this is a representation of this idea of this possibility of wakefulness. Maybe the Buddha as an actual being represents this. But, but we can bow to this possibility to, to wake up in any moment. That's always there for us. I think Guy spoke about this last night. <clears throat> Maybe I did. Somebody did, but we can wake up in any moment. This is always possible for us. It doesn't matter what's happening. And this leads to an important consideration. And maybe one of the most powerful things about this practice we're doing is that there is nothing in our experience that we can't be aware of, we can't bring mindfulness to, that we can't wake up to. There's nothing that we can't be awake to, be mindful of, there's nothing that cannot serve as a vehicle for the arising of insight, of liberating wisdom. So it actually doesn't matter what's happening. Anything is just as good. There's no, we have our preferences. We are clear about that. I certainly have mine. But in terms of the practice and what can serve us, there is no, nothing better coarse or fine, subtle or gross, it doesn't matter. And this is really good news and there's something very uh, empowering in this. Everything is equal in, in terms of the practice. There's nothing that falls outside the scope of our practice that arises in our experience. Are you, I hope you're hearing this. This is actually really good news because our job here is not to try to control it. Good luck. That's not where we should be putting our energy, folks, is trying to control it. It's our, 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 <laughs> our ability to control it is limited at best, as I'm sure many of you have noticed, because we don't give up trying. We don't give up trying, do we? And this is one of the hardest things for us to learn in, in this practice, is that our, it's not about trying to get certain kinds of experiences or attain certain kinds of special states or have something that feels really good. And sometimes things that we, you know, we have blissful and beautiful, powerful experiences in meditation. That's true. Sometimes we do have those. And they can bring energy and they can bolster our faith and they can, um, you know, really serve us. They bring energy and they, we feel like, well, something's happening, you know, because a lot of the time we're just slogging it out. And in, but as inspiring as any experience might be, we need to bear in mind that ultimately the path is about freedom in any moment, no matter what's happening. Because true freedom can't be dependent on having it be a particular way or on having a particular experience because, or attaining some special state because they don't last. States don't last. Experiences are conditional. They're subject, having arisen, they're subject to changing and passing away. So there's no true freedom there. If, if our happiness is dependent in that way, there's no real freedom there. What happens when it goes away? But if we can find refuge in this quality of wakefulness in Buddha as being awake, and being awake right now, it's like this, it can unhook us from 
this fascination we have with the contents and what's happening. All that we feel about it and all that we like and don't like and want and don't want and find acceptable and find unacceptable. This fascination with it all and and the tendency to be practicing for states and experiences that uh, arises from that. If we take a refuge in wakefulness, it can help us to let go of, of this attempt to control things, to control it, to get it to be a certain way so that it meets our criteria for what we find acceptable. And this takes us deeper and to more essential kinds of considerations. And this is a doorway to liberation, a doorway to what we might call a true happiness, a lasting abiding happiness that is not dependent on states or conditions. And then we have the second of the triple gem is refuge in Dhamma. And we can look at this in, in at least a couple of ways based on different meanings of the word Dhamma or Dharma in Sanskrit, Dhamma in Pali. There's Dhamma as Buddha Dhamma, the teachings of the Buddha. And in one chant it said, Swakato Bhagavato Dhammo the teachings, the Dhamma is well expounded by the Blessed One. And there is this wealth of teachings. You know, it's a, a huge um, wellspring of, of uh, information and inspiration in these teachings that have been preserved over centuries. And, and this path of practice that has really stood the test of time for quite a while now. So there may be a sense of refuge in that, in that offering. But the word Dhamma also means uh, the law. You could say the, like the law of nature or the truth of the way it really is. Dhamma has that sec- uh, other meaning. And it relates directly to refuge in Buddha. We awake up to the truth of the moment, to the Dhamma. We wake up to it's like this right now. And this is always possible in the same way that we can always be awake. We can always know it's like this. This is how it is right now. Again, it doesn't matter how, what's going on. We can always know it's like this. And this is a place of dependability or a certain kind of safety in that, in this flow, this, this flow and flux of Uh, experience of our life. Because this refuge in Dhamma, in the truth of things, we stand on reality in this, on the way it is, not on the way we think it should be or the way we want it to be, but we stand on the truth. It is like this, and I can know that because I can be awake right now and know it's like this. And this this leads us below the, the surface and the changes of things. It takes us again to a deeper consideration to what we could say is a more universal truth or understanding. It leads us to what is common to all experience. And one aspect of this is uh, it leads us directly to touching uh, the truth of impermanence, the very nature of change that characterizes everything that arises. Any experience is of the nature, having arisen is of the nature then to change and pass away. This is the heart of what the Buddha was pointing at. Everything seems to flow from this understanding. The whole path in a way can be seen as flowing from uh, an ever deepening relationship to this truth, the truth of change. It's stressed over and over Every day here, one of us is going to say something about impermanence. I guarantee it. And, and really coming to a real and, and deep relationship to this, not through thinking about it more and more, but viscerally and through our bones and cells, this um, leads to a transformational shift in our perspective in the way we look at things. And it's the doorway to... Um, to insight, to liberation, really. 
And there's a classic description of the moment of awakening. It's found throughout the the text. They're talking about someone and it said that the stainless eye of the Dhamma arose thus. That which is subject to arising is subject to passing away. So simple. But it's so profound. And so if we take refuge in Dhamma as the truth of the way things really are, then it it connects us directly in any moment. That's what we'll see. That's one aspect of what we'll see. The way it is right now is that it's changing. We will always, we will never be able to say that that's not true. That will always be true. So this uh, relationship there with refuge and Dhamma leads us to touching impermanence in each moment. And this leads us to uh, a kind of dispassion to letting go and to liberation. Takes us to the very, very heart of things. And then we have the third of the triple gem, refuge and Sangha. The, traditionally the Arya Sangha, the noble disciples. Supatipanno Bhagavato Sawaka Sangho, the blessed one's disciples who have practiced well. And we may draw inspiration and find refuge in the fact that there are those who have walked this path since before and from the time of the Buddha on and who show us the way, inspiring figures we may have heard about, met, been lucky enough to meet, read about, and they de- who demonstrate in some way with their very being that, that it is actually possible and that, you know, the famous words of the Buddha, if it weren't possible, I wouldn't ask you to do it. But since it is, I ask you to try. I ask you to do it. So this is one aspect of Sangha. Sangha also, in my, the way I hold it, it also has a very direct connection with um, with you could say our highest intention or highest aspiration, why we would uh, undertake this practice, why we would come and, and do a long retreat like this. And, and the shared intention that uh, we all have in coming here and sitting here together. This, this, uh, and it's an intention and a, an aspiration that we share with all seekers in any tradition down through the ages. It's not just the domain of, of us folks who might or might not call ourselves Buddhists, us awakists. All seekers share this, this intention, this longing, this movement of the heart towards peace or freedom or happiness, liberation, all the different words. And each of you might hold that in your own way, but it comes to the same movement of the heart. And, and I think a connection to this, to actually reflecting on it and, and touching it is important, maybe crucial, essential in our practice, in our life, because it clarifies what we're doing. It clarifies what's important. It helps us to seek out that which moves us in that direction, which actually um, leads to freedom. We can take hold of that energy. It leads us to actually do something to make effort, to engage with the practice in some way. <clears throat> it clarifies why we would come on retreat. And um, I think to reflect on our aspiration or intention in this way, not as a fixed goal, because you know our goals can change as our practice unfolds. But if we think of it in terms of a kind of direction that we're steering in, like a compass heading, you know, we're steering in the direction of freedom, of ease, of deep happiness. We see what leads in that direction, we steer in that way, and we steer away from that which leads to suffering and unhappiness, to dis-ease. There's a, a definition from uh, teacher Ajahn Suchito that I really like. Um, when he spoke once about Sangha, and he, he, he called it a marvelous organism. 
that is created, when a group like this comes together with this kind of shared intention and this, what he called a heart inclination towards uh, love and kindness and wisdom. And he is this image that I, I like to, I, I like to uh, use. And in this room is nice because it has all these windows on the sides. And he said, it's like windows looking into a, a room, a commonality. We all look through our own window, our own personal history, everything we've lived through. And that's real and true and honored and important. But we're looking into something that is more universal than what might be personal to any one of us. Something that is common, that is shared, that is deeper, wider than any individual story that might be there. More timeless, more universal. And so if we take refuge, if we go for refuge in Sangha, in this uh, sense of aspiration, in this intention that we bring, our potential to wake up, to know it's like this, the truth of the moment, this leads us to the heart of, of things, the heart of the matter and the heart of what the Buddha taught and the possibility of actually finding a kind of lasting or true happiness. Because I think, I think any one of us, if we were asked, we would say some aspect of our motivation in coming on retreat has to do with this movement of heart, this urge for finding a real happiness. We might express it in different ways, but I think we all can relate to that. And we all want this. And it's a beautiful wish that we share with all beings. All beings wish to be happy, to feel safe, to feel at ease to be free, however you might say it. And, and it's good to remind ourselves that all of the nonsense that we get up to is, is in pursuit of this. All the people, even people who seem to be doing everything to cause themselves and others suffering, they're just very confused about where to look for happiness. And we often are confused. And if we're not looking for it in the right place, we're not very likely to find it. But this refuge in Sangha in the way, and in the triple gem, and in Sangha, in the way I've been t- talking about it, in terms of this intention to be awake to the truth of things, this leads us to actually looking for happiness in a place where we might possibly find it. So now's the time when we're going to do some chanting. And tonight we will chant the first five of the eight precepts here. And I'll just go through the first five. In a few days, we will offer uh, for those who wish to uh, undertake the eight precepts. We'll talk more about that uh, extra level of renunciation, uh, why you might or might not choose to do it, and we'll formally uh, engage that way. Some of you may know you wish to, and there's nothing keeping you from starting now, but we'll do it in a more formal way and give you a few days to think about whether or not this is something that actually makes sense and is good, would be a good thing for you. So we'll chant the first five uh, precepts tonight. I've gone through at great length about the first part, the homage and the refuges, the precepts, the first five. I'll just, uh, r- just go through them quickly and what, they're, what they are. It's good to know what we're chanting. So we undertake the panatipata, the first one, the precept to refrain from killing living beings, large or small, annoying or non-annoying, hopping or non-hopping, and so forth. But there may be, you know, we seem to be past mosquito season, but there might be a few of them out there. They are living beings. So it's this respect for all life, all beings, wish to be happy and safe and we protect them by not intentionally harming them. Now we can't live and uh, without harming because we're big compared with some beings and we won't see them. So it's this, in all of these, it's this intention. That's the key. We're not intentionally harming living beings. The adinadana, we're uh, refraining from taking that which is not offered or given. 
We're respecting one another's uh, personal property. We're being careful how we use resources, how we uh, how we take how what we use, and we're, we're exercising care. So it's not just around stealing, but it's it's a broader application of being careful in what we use, how we use it. The abramacharya, in this case on retreat here, it's the precept to refrain from any sexual activity of any kind. It's not a moral judgment about that. In lay life, we say kamesumi chachara to refrain from harming with sexual energy. So there's a clear understanding that this is part of life, very real. It's going to come up for some of us. I know this very well personally on retreat. It's gonna sometimes be really strong and it's, it's natural and normal and it's a beautiful part of life and it also is an aspect of life in this energy. We know how much harm it can lead to when there's not mindfulness and uh, care with this energy. So we have a chance to uh, look at it, not with shame, not with any judgment, but with really wanting to understand and get to know this energy, it's real. But we're not acting on it. The Musawada, the fourth, to refrain from false speech. So obviously not lying, we're not gonna be talking a lot here, but it's how we talk to ourselves also. That's an aspect of this. And not not uh, embellishing, speaking what's useful and being careful in the way we use speech. And then uh, the fifth one, the Sura Meriya Majapamadatana, is uh, to refrain from taking intoxicants and substances that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. So we're after clarity and heedfulness. This does not in any way apply to any kind of prescription medication you may be on. You should, of course, take that, things that you need for your health and well-being. But it's, it's substances that uh, lead to clouding of the mind, to heedless behavior. So we're letting go of that. So that's the first five, and we'll chant those tonight. And then, uh, yeah, let's do it. So we'll do it uh, call and response. <clears throat> at least to some extent. Just follow along after me and it will happen. Some of us will hold our hands in this Anjali posture. Anjali uh, is this prayer posture. It's said to represent the bud of a lotus that might flower. And it's a gesture of respect and you may do that or not as you wish. <clears throat> so I'll do the Namotasa once. We'll do it all together three times and then uh, just follow along after that. It will become clear. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. All together. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Buddhang sarananga chami. Buddhang sarananga chami. Dhammang sarananga chami, Dhammang sarananga chami, Sanghang sarananga chami, Sanghang sarananga chami, Dutiampi buddhang sarananga chami, Dutiampi buddhang sarananga chami, Dutiampi dhammang sarananga chami, Dutiampi dhammang saramanga chami, Dutiampi sangang sarananga chami, Dutiampi sangang sarananga chami, all together. Tatiampi budang sarananga chami. Tatiampi dhammang sarananga chami. 
Tatiampi Sanghang Sarananga Chami Panati Pata Panati Pata We Ramani We Ramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Sikapadang Samadhyami Adina Dhanna Adina Dhanna We Ramani Sikapadang Samadhyami We Ramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Abrahmacharya Abrahmacharya We Ramani Sikapadang Samadhyami We Ramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Musawada Musawada We Ramani Sikapadang Samadhyami We Ramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Sura Meraya Sura Meraya Majapamadatana Majapamadatana We Ramani Sikapadang Samadhyami We Ramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Idame Silam Idame Silam Magapalanyanasa Magapalanyanasa Pachayo Hotu Pachayo Hotu And then we usually say sadhu three times. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Sadhu means well-spoken or well-said. And it was well-spoken and well-said. <clears throat> so we put that closing line there, this reflection on this potential power. May this sila, may this uh, virtue of mine Here it says, help bring about, I would say, be the cause and condition for the knowledge of the path and its fruit. So there's one more, one or two more aspects of this idea of refuge that I want to touch on briefly tonight. That I think are, uh, this first one at least, it's, in, it's implied by uh, everything that I've said in terms of refuge in the Triple Gem. Um, and maybe in a way resides at the very heart of it all. And this, we could say, is refuge in this quality of awareness itself. Take a moment just right now and feel the quality of the aware mind. Right now. You can, anytime you can say, is there awareness? You can ask that question. It's a great question to ask because you will always be able to say yes. You cannot ask that question and say no. There might not have been, there might not be, but in that moment, is there awareness? Yes. Right now, there is. It's simple. It's simple, that ability to be awake, to be mindful, to bring awareness to the moment. It's very simple, it's here right now. Is there awareness? Yes. but it's profound. It opens the door. This is a complete game changer, this ability, this quality, this possibility in any moment. It changes everything. With this, everything is possible. Without it, nothing is possible. We're just living out our conditioning. And we start to trust this more and more and we see that awareness can hold anything that arises. And we see that this quality of awareness is not changed or affected by that which it knows. That the awareness of fear is not afraid. The awareness of anger is not angry. The awareness of joy is not itself joyful. It's more pure than that. And, and I think in a way we start to see that if we take refuge in this, possibility and this quality right now. 
Is there awareness? Yep. We find that it leads us to a, a truth that is already there, to some part of us that already knows that's already free, a voice inside our own mind and heart that already knows. This is a quotation from a teacher, a Thai forest monk named Ajahn Fuang Jyotiko. It's from a book called Awareness Itself. You just have to be, keep being observant of the mind, awareness itself. It's not the case that the mind isn't aware, you know. Its basic nature is awareness. Just look at it. It's aware of everything. Aware, but it can't yet let go of its perceptions and the conventions it holds to be true. So you have to focus your investigation on in. Simply keep at it. If you're persistent like this without letting up, your doubts will gradually fade away, fade away, and eventually you'll reach your true refuge within the refuge within you, the basic awareness that sees clearly through everything. This is the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha appearing within you as your ultimate refuge. It's sovereign in and of itself. It knows clearly and truly all around. That's the true refuge within. I think we start to get more and more a sense of this possibility of finding refuge there, rather than in anything in the changing flow of passing experience. We trust that ability to be awake, to be aware. That's possible in any moment. Check it right now. But we know how, you know, it's so simple, right? But then we know it's not easy. If it was easy, we'd all be fully enlightened. We're not just a bunch of slackers and a lot of us have put in a lot of time. You know, it's, it's, it, this is a radical retraining of how we approach things because our conditioning is so strong to look outside ourselves for both the cause of our struggles and suffering and the solution for that, the solution to that struggle. And we have this deep retraining of the mind that happens here and it's not gonna happen quickly. It doesn't happen in one retreat, probably, maybe. Maybe this is the one, yes, do it. But this practice and meditation, it's asking us to meet these bodies, minds and hearts in this radically intimate way And most of us have spent maybe most of our life trying to avoid doing this. It's, you know, we come on retreat, it's not like we're issued a particularly uncomfortable body and a wild, wacky mind at the door when we come in. You know, we we aren't given a special bad body and mind. (laughs) Oh, here, take this one and practice with it. It's the one we live with all the time. But, you know, we come on retreat and it sure seems like we were given a bad one at the door sometimes. <laughs> oh no, look what it's doing. It won't do what I want. <laughs> and coming face to face with ourselves often reveals these deep habituated tendencies and conditioning, deeply habituated habits of mind, it reveals tendencies of desire and aversion and judgment and resistance and so forth. And learning to find a place of freedom in the midst of all that is not easy sometimes. It takes strength of heart, courage, and kindness, I think, more than anything else. Because there's times when it feels great and times when it's taking everything we have just to be here at all. And so the more kindness we can bring to this, the better off we're going to be. And these are the words of the Buddha from uh, one teaching in the Samyutta Nikaya. He said, Therefore, you should train yourselves thus. We will develop and cultivate the liberation of mind by loving kindness. We will make it our vehicle, make it our basis, stabilize it steady and consolidated, exercise ourselves in it, and fully perfect it. Thus should you train yourselves. 
I love this idea that we will make it our vehicle. Let's let this awareness ride the vehicle of love and kindness and care, of friendliness. And we can do this in a simple way. We can do uh, specific practices, but we can also touch this quality just in our willingness to meet the moment, to show up for our lives, to take care of our lives by showing up, being willing to do that, and by not abandoning ourselves when it's difficult. Because sometimes it will be, it will be difficult. And so when we, if we can make this quality of metta, of simple friendliness, kindness, care, make that our vehicle, let's let the awareness ride that vehicle, then we, we touch another aspect of refuge in that, we take refuge in that in the heart's true nature, because that's what's revealed through the practice. This is just the nature of the heart. We don't have to get that and put it in there. It's there. We just uncover it. So I'll uh, stop now and we'll let these words drift away. Have just a moment of silence. So thank you for your kind attention this evening. And we have some time for walking. And we'll start the uh, chanting tonight. I'll keep it short, uh, more of an introduction. And we'll keep the sitting short tonight. So um, you may not have the energy for that. But if you do, please be welcome to come. And we'll be learning this beautiful chant over the the weeks together. So uh, please be welcome. That's at 9 o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.